Okay, chapter four. In the previous chapters, we're learning about the Altarim introduced to us that we have two souls, right? The Nefesh Bahamis, the animal soul, the living soul, and then the Nefesh Alikis, the godly soul. And in chapter three, the Altarim starts to explain to us the anatomy, the makeup, the biology of the, the divine soul, the Nefesh Alikis. So the first thing he tells us is, that you should know that the divine soul has two um, two parts to it. Seichel and Midas. It has intellect and emotions. And the Seichel, the intellect, um, has three parts to it. Chachma Bina Da'as, which in the bad translation is wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. But in a better translation... So Chachma would be inspiration, right? The inspiration of the idea. Bina would be, I say, taking it apart, analyzation. And then Das would be like connection, taking that idea and connecting it and, and applying it to uh, a type of emotion. And then uh, he also says that the, that uh, Seichel, intellect, is called parents. That's their job. Their job is to give birth to the children, which is the emotions, love and fear, and all things that are connected to that. And since we're talking about the, the, the divine soul, so we are focusing exclusively on understanding, loving, and fearing God. We're not talking about anything else. It's all about God. That's what the divine soul is all about. So we're not talking here about our personal relationships. We're not talking here about our relationship with other things in this world, the food that we eat, our job. That's not what the Nefesh Kiss is involved in at all. Only about God. Yeah. So I have a question about that. Uh-huh. So it's only about God, but doesn't the godly soul have to have the tools to work, well, work with the body? Obviously it does, because we talked about Chapter 4. Chapter 4. Right, so now the divine soul needs to apply itself to the physical world, right? Because right now what we're saying is that the soul is able to understand and the soul is able to love and fear God. Now, how does the soul actually serve God? That's the question. Through understanding God, loving and fearing God, you don't serve God. That's not called service. That's not called, at least technically speaking, that's not called avodat Hashem. That's not called serving God. Because when God came to, came to us at Mount Sinai, He didn't tell us, understand me. He did, but He didn't. Or let's put it this way. He did say that. However, it's impossible for our brain to fully and truly comprehend God. It's an impossibility. We are a creation. Nivra. God is creator. The boire. It's impossible for a creation to fully comprehend the creator. It's impossible for the creation to truly love the Creator. And the truth is that when our souls were in heaven, it had a tremendous advantage. It was able to understand God better. It was able to love and fear God better. And in fact, there's an expression from the Altar Rebbe that even if a, a tzaddik would live in this world 180 years and he would, you know, he, would, he would serve God every single moment, he would never come close to the understanding the love and fear of the soul, the way it is in heaven before it comes down to this world. So, chapter 3 
is explaining to us the essence of the soul, you know, how the soul works, how the soul develops, how the soul understands, how the soul loves and fears. But how the soul serves God, that doesn't happen yet. And that comes into play in chapter 4. So let's read it a little bit in the English and then we'll get into more of the ideas. So page 14, beginning of chapter 4. In addition, right, so if you look at the at the note on the bottom, right, having outlined in chapter three the intrinsic faculties of the soul, the author goes on to explain how they express themselves through the three outer garments or instruments. So now we're going to talk about how the soul expresses itself, how the soul applies itself in the body and in the world. So in addition, Every divine soul, nefesh alekis, possesses three garments. That's the term that the Altar is going to use throughout, garments. And when you hear garments, think instruments, tools, whatever, that, that type of thing. So it possesses three garments, which are thought, speech, and action. Now, since we're talking about the divine soul, there's only one way that this thought, speech, and action is expressed, expressing themselves in the 613 commandments of the Torah. That's it. That's what we're talking about here. The divine soul, the only way it says hello to the world, the only way it finds expression in the body is through the mitzvahs. In no other way, there's no other way that it can be expressed in the body. There's no other way that we can access the divine soul. The only way is through the, through the mitzvot now by the way mitzvot can be a very very broad concept which we'll see as we go along as we learn chassidus but it's never expressed in just uh, you know enjoying yourself appreciating life going to see the Eiffel Tower okay for when a person actively fulfills all the precepts all the mitzvahs which require physical action and with his power of speech, he occupies himself in the expounding in expounding all the 613 commandments and their practical application. In other words, he talks about them, he learns about them, right? Or he uses his power of speech for prayer, or in general for learning. And with the power of thought, he comprehends all that is comprehensible to him in the pardis of the Torah, Again, he's not talking about understanding God. We're talking here about understanding Torah in general. Understanding not just every not just every mitzvah of the Torah, but every level of the Torah. That's why he mentions the idea of pardis. Pardis literally literally means an orchard. But pardis, the Hebrew word pardis is three, four letters. Pei, Resh, Dalid, Samach, which is the acronym. These four letters are the first letters of four words. Pshat. Remez, Drush, and Sod. Oh, he brings it over here. If you look, oh, let's look at number four. Uh, note four. Literally meaning orchard, it is taken as an acronym of the four Hebrew words, Pshat, Remez, Drush, Sod, meaning plain sense, intimation, homiletical exposition, and esoteric meaning, respectively, the four levels of scriptural interpretation. Every word in the Torah can be understood in at least these four levels in its literal sense, in its homiletical sense, in what it is intimating, and also its mystical 
and the hidden sense, esoteric meaning. So we have to understand everything. If a Jew comes and says, you know, I, I, only, I only do the plain stuff. I, I don't understand the esoteric stuff. Excuse me? Who are you to pick and choose Torah? You could say, I have a bigger passion for the literal stuff. I have more of a passion for homiletics over the esoterics. Or just the opposite, I have more of a passion for esoterics over homiletics. That's fine. You can have more of a passion for anything you'd like. But to go and, and, and to say... Ah, for me, Torah is this, nothing else. Who are you? God is the one giving the Torah. You're the one picking and choosing. What's going on over here? You're not in control. And we're talking here about your divine soul. Your divine soul is not yours to abuse, to manipulate, to decide, to to say, oh, no, 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 my soul is not connected to that. Who are you? Every part of Torah, pardis, every level of Torah is connected to every single Jew. Okay, so let's go back here. So when you're actively involved in the mitzvot, and when you speak all the mitzvot, and when you think the Torah, we use your thought in order to comprehend the Torah, then the totality of the 613 organs of his soul are clothed are clothed in the 613 commandments of the Torah. Where did the number 613 come from in the soul? I know there's 613 mitzvot, but where, how, how did that all of a sudden happen in the soul? So our body also has the magical number 613. What? So look at the uh, number 5. Oh. So the physical organism of the human body consists of 248 members, like organs, and 365 blood vessels, corresponding to the 248 positive and 365 prohibitive Commandments. The soul contains the spiritual counterparts of these 613 organs. So there are no doctors in the house, but I'll preempt the obvious question. You go to a doctor and you say, how many organs are there? They'll tell you a number. Right? What about 248? Ah, that's, uh, you know. So, so let me just give a little context to this idea over here. Um, the human biology comes up in Torah law uh, when it comes to death. Alright, so one of the one of the most important things in Judaism is the Holy Temple, right? Holy Temple. Uh, which stood in Jerusalem twice for many years. Now, in order to go into the Holy Temple, there was one prerequisite. Just one. And that is, you had to be Tahor. Religiously pure, ritually, ritualistically pure. Um, so it has nothing to do with hygiene, right? Nothing to do. With fine. Now, one of the one of the cardinal uh, ways of becoming tame, impure, is by coming in contact with or being under the same roof as a dead body. Uh, fine. So if someone is in contact with death, he becomes tame. <clears throat> In order to go into the Holy Temple, he has to go to the mikveh. Uh, he or she have to go to the mikveh, and they have to be sprinkled with the waters that was mixed with the with the ashes of the red heifer, called meichatos, the spiritual, the the purifying waters. Now the question is, what defines ritual impurity through death? What's the definition of that? Must the body be 
complete in order for that ritual impurity to pass on to the person or not. And the Mishnah tells us that no, um, there are different situations. One of the situations is if most of the organs are there, then that conveys a level of tumah, ritual impurity. Now, so, so this has nothing to do with medicine. Again, it has nothing to do with uh, healing the person's dead. How do you define most organs? The majority of the organs. You have to count. You have to basically put a number to how many organs there are. And if there is 500 organs, so 251 organs means you're tummy. And if it's less than that, then you're not tummy. I'm being very general, but I'm trying to give this context. So the Mishnah defines that there are 248 organs of the body in a male body. There's a few more in a female body. 248 organs in the male body, and therefore, if someone comes across the skeleton of a male, and there are, help me out with the matter here, 125, right, I got it right, 125 organs, so that's a majority of organs that are there, you come Tame, can't go into the Holy Temple. And if you go into the Holy Temple, there are certain punishments that are associated with it, etc. That means you, you could bring the, the, the Passover sacrifice, you can't bring the Passover sacrifice. There's a lot of issues that come with this. So in other words, every Jew in Israel had to be familiar with how to identify all the organs of the body according to Torah law. In other words, there's a Torah definition to how many organs are in the body. Science can find a thousand more organs, that's fine. That's great. But Torah defined 248. That means that Torah groups together four or five of them and makes that one organ. It doesn't matter. Right? You'll ask any scientist or anyone, you know, how do you count things? First, you have to define what they are. Define how you're going to count them. That's fine. So it's never a contradiction between Torah and science, how many organs there are in the body. They're using different methods how to count. That's it. Now, if you want to heal your body, you go to a doctor who has the most updated, uh, you know, knowledge in medicine. And that's what the Torah says, you go to a doctor for healing. But if you want to know if something is tummy or tar, you go to the rabbi and say, how do we define the organs? Let's count the organs and let's see if there's a majority over there. So in other words, when we say that there are 248 organs in the human body, we mean that in halachic terminology, in the halachic context, Halacha has defined 248 organs, and it's not a hypothetical theoretical concept. It's a very practical issue that Torah had to define, because one of the central issues in Jewish life, especially during Temple times, depended on concrete knowledge of how many organs there are in the body. So that's the 248 organs of the body. 248 is the amount of positive mitzvot that we have. Oh wow, how interesting, right? But it's very obvious once you're learning Chassidus a little bit more. Every mitzvah is connected to or corresponds to another organ, right? So when you keep the 248 positive mitzvot, you're keeping your 248 organs healthy, right? Or, no, let's not put it that way, you're keeping your 248 organs engaged in God, connected to God. That's the way you connect. That's their ticket to God. These 248 organs have a soul that bring it to life. That means the soul has 248 life-giving elements to it that bring life to these 248 organs. 248. Then Allah also defines 365 blood vessels, whatever that means. 
gives it a number, 365. 365 corresponds to 365 negative commandments. Oh, very nice. When I keep the negative commandments, I'm keeping the blood flow going strong, going well. And that corresponds to 365 life-giving elements in the soul as well. 365 plus 248 is a total of 613. Right? So what we have here is that the soul has 613 stuff. The body has 613 stuff. When we engage in the 613 mitzvot, our soul is expressed, our, our divine soul is expressed in our body. So now it's like this. Life is life. And everyone, whoever is alive, has a soul bringing life to every part of their body. How do you reveal that your life is God? How do you reveal that this life here on earth is a divine life? Through the 613 mitzvot. And that's the only way to reveal it. There's no other way. I have a question. Yeah. So if you're not Jewish, do you... Okay. We have the seven... So what's going on with the 613 with them in terms of... I know we're talking body-wise, physically, at least we can say, like you said, they must have the same... Of course. Of course. But their interface is only seven... We're interfacing with the whole, the whole thing. Well, we, we definitely do have a different type of interface. That's why we're called the chosen nation, right? Chosen nation means we were chosen to live a specific type of life because we were chosen to operate with a certain type of interface. So when Abraham became, well, I don't know, it's like became, whatever. Okay. <laughs> so did his soul go from these seven to six why are you asking that Abraham? Ask any person that converts to Judaism. They get a new soul. Right, That's what right, it yeah, means. That's what it means. But it means that you're reborn again. You're like, you're like a child that was just born. It's a new type of life. Which, by the way, is like a wild thing. It doesn't make any sense. So it only works if it's done right. If it's not done right, it doesn't work. Okay. So now let's go into more details over here. Specifically... The faculties of Chabad in his soul, so Chachma bin Adas, the intellect of his soul, are clothed in the comprehension of the Torah, which he comprehends in Pardis, to the extent of his mental capacity and the supernal root of his soul. A very interesting concept here. So we mentioned beforehand that Pardis encompasses all the elements of the Torah from the literal meaning to the esoteric meaning, etc. So then someone might ask and say, I'm learning and learning and learning, and I'm just, I'm, I can't compete with the other guy. You know, the, the other guy is learning much more than me, much deeper than me, and he understands it, he appreciates it, he's able to innovate, and I'm just not capable of doing that. Does that mean that my soul is uh, incomplete? Does that mean that I'm not? The answer is no. Everyone has a different level of what their soul is actually able to comprehend in Torah. Not everyone's capable of, of you know, the highest levels of learning, etc. However, you've got to push yourself to the fullest extent that you are capable of doing. To go and to say, this is not for me, and this is uh, too deep, and this, you have to wait till you're 40, and this, you have to wait till you're 85, whatever, that's, that's silliness. But... As long as you're learning and you're utilizing your time and your energies and you're engaging yourself in Torah, don't worry if you're only capable of learning X, Y, and Z while the other person is able to learn much more. Because 
even that which you're able to learn during your lifetime all depends on your mental capacity, which people have different ones, different levels of mental capacity, right? IQ is a real thing. Although it's possible to push yourself beyond your mental capacity and to develop a higher level, a higher level of IQ, a higher level of, of uh, capacity. And then there's also the supernal root of his soul. Every soul comes from a different root in heaven. And um, based on the source of the soul, that will also determine how much Torah or how deeply or what areas of Torah one is able to understand better, etc. Alright, so when you engage, so, so, so when you're learning Torah, what are you engaging? The Chabad of your soul. So Chabad of your soul is engaged in Machshava, in thought. In, the, in, that, uh, in that garment, in that tool. And the Midot, namely fear and love, together with their offshoots and ramifications, are clothed in the fulfillment of the commandments, in deed and in word. Namely, in the study of Torah, which is equivalent to them all. And have a lot of a lot of focus on Torah study here. So, how does love and fear express itself? The husband tells the wife, "I love you." So, what does she say? Take out the garbage. <laughs> Take out the garbage. <clears throat> Is that a slap in the face? No. You love me, so do something about it, right? And vice versa. The wife tells the husband, I love you, as you say, iron my shirt, please. Right? So that's a, it's all a give and take. Love without action is meaningless. Someone says, ooh, I respect you. Okay, so give me space. <laughs> Move away. You respect me, don't walk into my room without knocking on the door. You respect me, don't write those things about me. Right? Respect without action, in other words, respect without a certain type of uh, how do you say uh, holding yourself back withholding yourself from doing certain things is also meaningless right so when we talk about loving God respecting God fearing God if that doesn't translate itself into action it's worthless it's meaningless it's nothing complete huh? it's right it doesn't mean anything so he says and midot namely fear and love together with their offshoots are clothed in the fulfillment of the commandments how do you fulfill commandments? There's deed, there's the action, putting on fill, lighting Shabbos candles, giving charity, etc. And then there's also in word. And what is the main way to fulfill a mitzvah with word is the study of Torah. Not just understanding Torah, but reciting the words of the Torah, that itself is a mitzvah. For love is the root of all the 248 positive commands, all originating in it, and having no true foundation without it. Okay, so here he says the, the counter idea. Love without action is meaningless. But action without love doesn't say is meaningless, but has no true foundation. What does that mean? What does that mean? If someone does a mitzvah without loving God, that's a mitzvah. It's a valuable mitzvah, it's a real mitzvah. There's nothing, there's nothing essentially wrong with the action. However, however, well, yeah, it doesn't have wings. That's later on in Tanya. Chapter 40, 41, 42, we talk about the wings. 
but um, here, here's how I would put it. Raspberry has no true foundation. There's no way to ensure that this action, this habit, will endure. The fact that a person put on tefillin on the street, put out his hand, and the boychik, you know, wrapped the tefillin around the vine, it's a mitzvah, it's very good. How do we know that I'll put on tefillin tomorrow? We don't. He probably won't. He probably won't. The next day, someone's going to catch him on the street. Okay, roll it up, wrap it. When is he going to start to put on tefillin every day? Uh, you invite him over for a Shabbos meal, and he comes to a class, and he starts to get involved, and he starts to learn. He says, hey, I should buy my own tefillin. Why, why is he, why is he spent to stop for two minutes on the street and roll up your hand? It doesn't really cost you much. Whatever, okay. A little bit of embarrassment, or this, or that. Obviously, I give a lot of credit to someone that does it. It's a lot. It's a big sacrifice, but it doesn't demand a huge investment. But when the Jew is ready to start buying the tefillin, and he's investing time and effort to learn about the tefillin and how to put it on himself, and he puts the tefillin in his office, he says, "This is an important part of my life." There's definitely, there's definitely an element of a certain passion and attraction to God happening here. This person has to be in a, in a certain mindset. I'm Jewish, and I want to connect. Why? Because I'm learning about Judaism, I'm loving my Judaism, I'm growing in my Judaism. Action can only endure, can only become routine, can only become something that you can depend on, can only be dependable if there is the fuel, the engine, the power of love behind it. And if not, it won't endure, right? Um, let's continue here. Inasmuch as he who fulfills them in truth truly loves the name of God and desires to cleave to him in truth. So it goes even deeper than It's not just about making sure that he does the mitzvah every day. But are you, are you engaged in the mitzvah in a true way? Are you putting on tefillin for the right reasons? And the answer is, the only <coughs> way to be putting on tefillin for the right reasons is if you're, if you're involved in a relationship with God. And when that relationship becomes real, then the mitzvah becomes more true. The mitzvah becomes more impactful. It becomes much more meaningful. It becomes part of this relationship that you have with God Almighty. Also, another point here is that when a person starts to learn about God and love God, so what do you want to do? In other words, as a result of loving God, you want to connect to God. How do you connect to God? There's only one way. Through a mitzvah. Action. Action. That's the only way to connect to God. Everything else is, is nothing. If a person says, because I love God, I'm going, to, or I'm going to go to the top of the mountaintop and close my eyes and take a selfie. Great, great. So you took a selfie. That's not the way to connect to God. I make up my own ways of connection. Excuse me? That's not how it works. Imagine if you did that in marriage. It wouldn't work that way. You tell your spouse, here, listen here. I love you very much, and I'm going to tell you how I'm going to love you. I'm not going to come home four days a week. I'm going to come home one day a week, and that's it. I should be like, what? what? I'm not into this. That's not a relationship. I hate you. Bye. Doesn't work that way. You don't set the terms for connection. 
the one you want to connect to sets the terms. Your creation wants to connect to the Creator, the Creator sets down the terms. The Creator sets down those boundaries and the ways we're going to connect. You love me, you want to connect to me, put on tefillin. You want to connect to me, give charity, eat kosher. You know the famous story about the kukariko? The kakadoodle-doo? Oh, you heard the story, of course. The kakadoodle-doo. Yeah. It's almost them kippers, so I'll say the story and I'll kind of... So, the story goes that there was a... The Baal Shem Tov was davening, it was Yom Kippur. It was very late in the day, there was during the Elah, the sun already set, and the Baal Shem Tov is very... How do you say? Very distressed. They could tell that the Baal Shem Tov is a praying, is very distressed. And his students were able to tell that if the Baal is distressed during the Ilah, that means that something's going on in heaven that's not great. And the Baal is crying, etc. So, so everyone started to cry. It was a whole, you know, a lot of drama going on. In the back of the shul, there was a, a little shepherd boy, a teenager, never had the opportunity to have a Jewish education, or any education for that matter. And uh, he was a shepherd, he worked on the farm, he would take out the sheep and stuff like that. And he came to the shul for the first time in Yom Kippur to be together with the Jews. Couldn't read Hebrew, couldn't hold a book, nothing. And he was there the whole day, and he was watching everyone pray, and he can't do anything. Finally, at the end of the day, he sees that everyone is crying and screaming and shouting, and it's a whole... So he decides, okay, I also want to express myself to God. So he stood up. He, he, he was very good at copying and imitating the sounds of all the animals in the farm. And the one that he loved the most was the call of the rooster. The rooster in the morning was kakadoodle-doo. In Russian, so kukareku. So he gets up there. Kukareku, yeah. French, no? Could be. Yeah, yeah, so it's a Hebrew song. Kukareku. Kakadoodle-doo is kukareku. He stands up at the back of the shul and he goes, kakadoodle-doo, but like, like, a, like a rooster, as a... He makes a kakadoodle-doo. He says, God, help us. He made a kakadoodle-doo. Now, imagine you're standing in the shul in front of the Baal Shem Tov. Everyone is crying. It's a serious time, the Ila time, right before the blowing of the shofar. And all of a sudden, the guy is starting to make a circus over here. Anyway, people like turned around. They wanted to rush him out of the, out of the shul. The bouncer was going to come and take him out. All of a sudden, the Baal Shem Tov, everything changed. Like the Bashamta like turned around, so like hey, no one's gonna do anything. And Bashamta goes back to his prayers, it was Simchastar. A minute a, a half a second earlier, the Bashamta was crying bitterly. And here, boom, everything was the, the Bashamta finished off the prayers and they prayed Mayriv and they made Avdallah and it was like Simchastar. I was like, well, what's going on? And afterwards during the meal after the after the Yom Kippur, so Bashamta told him like this that you know, throughout Yom Kippur, I was able to tell that in heaven there was a certain decree against a specific community and I had no way of annulling the decree it was a, it was a very big problem and I was searching this I couldn't find anything and when this kid in the back of the shoal stood up and with such genuine uh, feeling and, and, and you know with such truth he said kakadoodle do that broke all of the issues in heaven and uh, the, the, the decree was annulled and uh, everyone's going to have a shanato vamatuka Beautiful story, right? Here's the problem. Here's the problem with the story. Silly people take the story and say, oh, what do you see from here? What do you see from here? The action is not important. And the prayer is not important. What matters? They have a good heart, right? That's all that matters. Terrible mistake. And it's actually the complete opposite of what the Baal Shem was talking about. 
complete opposite of what the Baal Shem Tov was saying. Why? Well, let's, let's say that. First of all, who are we talking about here? A simple shepherd boy who never, ever had the opportunity to learn how to pray. Right? It wasn't like the shepherd boy was sitting in the back of the shoal munching away on a cheeseburger on Yom Kippur, which even he would know was not allowed, and then stood up and said, Kukariko, Kakadurudum, and went back to work. That's not what happened. The boy chick was doing everything that he could do. Everything that he was capable of doing. Everything that he knew that he had to do. He knows a Jew has to be a Shulim Kippur. He knows a Jew has to fast in Yom Kippur. So he comes. He's there. He's doing the best that he can in action. Now, in order for that action to be fueled with tremendous energy, you need to have a genuine heart. Okay, so you had the advantage of having that genuine heart and it channeled itself in Kukariku. Am I suggesting that we should stand in Shul on Yom Kippur right before the blowing of the shofar? Okay, everyone. Kakadurudu. What? What are you? What is, what is this? Are you silly? You're a fool. That's what he's saying over here. You love God. There's a way to express it. Action. You want that action to be real? You want that action to be powerful? Make sure you love God as well. There's no shortcuts. There's no saying, oh, oh for you, this is fine. Just just, just say, kakadurudu, and we'll go on. No. You have to put on tefillin. Oh, for you, tefillin is fine. Don't worry. You don't have to learn about tefillin. You don't have to learn about... You don't have to care about God. No. no. Everything is for everyone. And just because you're not there yet, so what? So you're not there yet. You'll get there. You have to know what it's all about. That by the in general, the Alter Rebbe, until about chapter 9, 10, is talking about certain facts. He's not telling you what to do. He's not telling you where you should be. He's not telling you how to climb the ladder of the service of God. Right now, he's just defining to us where what things are. What is a Vishama? What is the divine soul? What is the animal soul? What are its intrinsic faculties, which is seichel and midas, the intellect and the emotions? And what are its garments? What are its instruments? You have to know what these things are. You have to know how you say the, the, the best case scenario. You have to know what the ultimate is meant to be. How to get there? We've got time. What did he tell us in the beginning? It's going to be a long, short road. You have to have patience. You have to be engaged. You have to be ready to do step by step by step. But the only way to take a step forward is to know what the goal is. The only way to go forward in anything that you do is to know what the ultimate is all about. Will you ever reach the ultimate? I don't know. Can you? For sure you can. It all depends, right? Someone wants to go to medical school, right? So they have to know, what, what's, what's the goal of medical school? To become a doctor, the best doctor possible. And how many years it takes to go to become a doctor? At least 12 years, if not more. But this is life, this is what we do. Just because the, the person walking, into, the student walking into medical school the first day is not able to put an IV in, that doesn't mean anything. They can one day become the best doctors in the world. And that's when we open up the time and we start to learn. We have to realize, okay, we're, we're hearing, we're seeing, we're learning, we're engaging in what the ultimate is all about. And we should never try to understand it from our own perspective, our own experience, our own prism. Because then we're going to try to force everything into our way of thinking, into our will. No, no, no. 
open up your mind, your heart, see what it's all about. When you'll get there, separate question. Alrighty, let's continue. Huh? Step by step. For uh, so on the top of the second column, for one cannot truly cleave to him except through the fulfillment of the 248 commandments, which are the 248 organs of the king, as it were, as is explained elsewhere. By the way, the Altareb is doing us a major favor. He's also telling us, let me just tell you what definitely is not considered connecting to God. What did he say? It's exclusively through mitzvot. Anything else has nothing to do with God. While fear is the root of the 365 prohibitive commandments, fearing to rebel against the supreme king of kings, the holy one blessed is he. So that's one level of fear, that what motivates a person not to violate the prohibitions, the transgressions. Through, In other words, having such a respect for God that he doesn't want to go against God, he doesn't want to be a rebel. Or a still deeper fear than this, when he feels ashamed in the presence of the divine greatness to rebel against his glory and do what is evil in his eyes. Namely, any of the abominable things hated by God, which are the klipot and sitra akhira, which draw their nurture from man below and have their hold in him through the 365 prohibitive commands that he violates. There's a lot going on in this paragraph, but... So what is it, what's the expression of our fear of God, our yiras Hashem, our respect and awe of God? Don't do what he doesn't like. He said don't turn on the light on Shabbos, don't turn on that light. Don't eat that, that sandwich, I don't eat the sandwich. Why don't we do it? So one level is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to re- rebel against the king, right? If you have a king, a very powerful king, you don't want to rebel against him because you know the ramifications aren't great. But then there's a deeper level. When you're in the presence of the king, you don't do something that's against the king because you're ashamed to do that. So that's a deeper, more, I say, more uh, sublime type of level, more, you know, uh, in Yiddish we call it edel. How do you say that in, uh, in English? Anyway, the point is that that takes a bit of a higher level of sensitivity for a person not to do a sin because he's ashamed. He feels as he's in the presence of God, not that God's going to find out and punish me. God is here, how can I do this against God? That's a little bit of a different level. But uh, the point he's making is that the 365 prohibitive commandments are reflected in the person's body, the 365 blood vessels, which in the soul are the 365 levels that connect to that. When a person engages in a prohibitive commandment, when a person engage, when a person violates a mitzvah, for example, Torah says, do not, eat, do not eat milk and meat, right? Cheeseburger. So if a person eats a cheeseburger, so here's what happened, what's happening. Number one, is rebelling against God. That's number one. Number two, by eating that cheeseburger, so he is welcoming outside forces, forces of evil, to grab hold of divine energy that he or she contains, and they suck it out of him. They suck out that energy. Every Jew has a tremendous, uh, I'm sorry, every Jew is a tremendous resource of divine energy. Why? (coughs) Because every Jew has an afeshalikis, has a divine soul, which is a part of God himself. So God is within the Jew. Everyone wants to get a piece of that. 
Everyone wants to get a piece of God. The only way the forces of evil can get a piece of God is through the Jew. And their only way in is when the Jew is doing a sin. So when a Jew does a sin, he opens up like this, this like hole. The bad forces come in, suck out energy, and take it to themselves. So what happens at that point? You're misappropriating energy. You're abusing the energy that you have. You're losing out on that energy. It's a big violation. Yeah. But what's hard about it is that, unlike a child, when he does something and you immediately correct him, and there's a consequence, you know. I mean, you'll see somebody eat a cheeseburger, nothing happens to him. He's actually rich, he has a really good life. He's, so it's, I think you have to study and understand what's going on. Because in regular life, it's hard. You know, there's no immediate consequence that teaches you not to do it. On the flip side, if there was immediate consequences, then there wouldn't, wouldn't, be, a it wouldn't be a free choice, exactly. right? So exactly. The one thing is easy. Well, if you look at God as being the parent that's going to do what you just said, then so in other words, you have to learn. You have right. to learn in order to get that appreciation. There, are, there are Jews. That when their their finger their their hand goes next to the light on Shabbos to turn it on, they jump back as if they were just about to touch fire. Oh, you mean when they remember that? Oh, they, they were yeah. About to do that. Oh, they walk into the room, they put their hand, they jump back as if they're about to touch fire. Oh, are you crazy or something? What, what what's going to happen? But in their but they understand that turning on that light is a terrible thing. What's so terrible? Well, what's going to happen? Did someone die? Are you going to steal money? No, but I understand that if I turn on that light, forces of evil are going to come and suck at energy, and I'm doing terrible things to God. But that takes work. It doesn't... And training is also good. I want to ask it. Yeah. We were talking about the cheeseburger. Okay. He's a cheeseburger. He's being disrespectful. God rebels. You know, the evil, the evil takes power. Takes it's, it's peace of that. But then also, the evil's getting... It, becomes more powerful so then you eat the cheeseburger it's like it makes you weaker because now you ate the cheeseburger you're probably going to do it again you know what the Mishnah says you know what the Mishnah says mitzvah gereres mitzvah one mitzvah brings to another mitzvah avera gereres avera one sin leads to another sin that's exactly the point I just don't like this bad behavior is contagious what was that? bad behavior is contagious to to yourself mainly it's contagious to yourself alright we're going to stop here Thank you all for joining us, Kamar Simataiva, and uh, we'll meet again after the holidays.